Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 126 for the second half of February 2015. Today, I'm bringing you an interview with someone most of you probably know, Dr. Pamela Gay, who's going to talk with us about funding in science, how it's done, and some of the misconceptions around it. Dr. Pamela Gay is a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. She is an astronomer, writer, and most people listening to this probably know her best as a podcaster through her incredibly popular podcast, Astronomy Cast, which she co-hosts with Fraser Kane. Pamela's focus for the last several years has been to develop new ways of using new media to engage people in science and technology. Her most recent large endeavor into this has been through CosmoQuest.org, for which she's the director, and it presents forums, blogs, classes, and citizen science projects where you become the scientist, gathering real data. Since I've often billed my own podcast as though it were the illegitimate love child between Skeptoid and Astronomy Cast, it is a real honor to have Pamela join us today to talk about a particular topic that's been on her mind lately and on the minds of many other scientists in the field funding. So, with that in mind, welcome to the podcast, Pamela. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, we've been talking about doing this for a few years, so it's a pleasure to finally get you on and talk about what might be a depressing topic. <laughs> uh, might, I think, is perhaps the uh, greatest understatement I, I've <laughs> heard in a long time. Well, let's, let's sort of start at the beginning. What are the main ways that scientists get, or as the case may be, don't get funding today? <laughs> Uh, so, so at a certain level, it depends uh, exactly on what your subfield is. But the places that scientists in general go are the National Science Foundation, NASA, the National Institutes for Health, the Department of Energy, uh, basically federal funding sources. This is the money that comes down because our government, well, more in the past than today, recognized that in order to successfully advance our society, we need to advance the science and technology that our society has at its fingertips and has invested money into researching, well, how to understand our universe, the insides of our bodies, and just about everything in between. And does that pretty much hold across uh, other countries too, or is that mostly just the U.S.? I mean, obviously, uh, Great Britain doesn't have the U.S.'s National Science Foundation, but are there equivalent types of government-based funding agencies, and are those the main ones in other countries? Within the developed world, that is largely the case. And within the developing world, you often are looking at uh, international bodies. For instance, the International Astronomical Union isn't a federal uh, association per se, but they receive a lot of their funding from various national agencies around the world that are paying dues to it. Uh, so you see within the developed world things like the International Astronomical Union provide funding, and you start to see that uh, things start to slip from federal funding towards uh, really wealthy guy benefacts you funding. Um, and in between those, you often will find uh, corporations doing funding. So unfortunately, here in the United States, our funding is starting to look more like the developing world than the rest of the developed world. So is this a recent development then with governments really doing the bulk of the funding. Uh, I, I think you, you hinted at it with, in the developing world, it's mostly, uh, or not maybe mostly, but it tends to be, in a lot of cases, the rich benefactors. And my broad understanding, because I really haven't studied this much, is that that's sort of how it was for really centuries until fairly recently. Is that the case? That That's entirely true. And, and this crops up in a lot of the history we learn in the classroom. You learn about how Galileo was funded by popes and the de Medicis and how Kepler was the astrologer to a king. Uh, all throughout history, until modern times, you saw that it was lords and rich individuals that cultivated science almost as a plaything. Um, 
And it was often the wealthy individuals who had their trust funds that had the time, Lord Rossi and his uh, work on galaxies, who had the time to build the scientific instrumentation, who had the access to the books to read what was already known, and then as a hobby, essentially become professional scientists. That started to change when technology started to play a significantly larger role in warfare and when the Industrial Revolution took part. We changed in two different ways as a global society. We went from people having a certain amount of centralization. There were farmers who brought their crops, uh, brought their animals into city centers, uh, often traded with, well, craftsmen who would turn raw goods into the spun clothing that was needed, the uh, basically furniture in your house and things like that. But Largely, it was from individual to individual that things were traded. With the Industrial Revolution, we went to having major corporations that, well, were creating massive amounts of textiles, massive amounts of so many other different things. And suddenly, it became necessary to start thinking on the technological side of commercial advancement. Then when we started to move into, well, the the end of the 1800s, we started to see things like submarines cropping up. With the beginning of the 1900s, we started to move towards automobiles and airplanes. And these produced great advancements in how we killed one another, which is something the government funds quite nicely. Yes. And, <laughs> and then you start adding in chemical warfare and bombs and rockets and for better or worse, the same science that you and I rely on to do good things can also be used to do very deadly things. And so it was really where the society as a whole started to realize that if we fund the development of technology, which requires basic scientific research, then society as a whole will benefit, or at least their society will in case of wars, right? It, exactly. It's, it's everything from the advancement of communications technology to transportation technology. All of this benefited all of society, made us as civilizations more wealthy, uh, in theory gave us more leisure time, but in reality just allowed <laughs> us time to work in different ways. Uh, uh-huh. Always on call. Always on call. Um, but yeah, as technology started to matter the science that generated that technology started to be something governments invested in. Okay, so we've mentioned now a few different types of, or not types, but ways to get funding. So uh, governments, especially these days in the developed world, tend to fund a lot of basic science. And there's also uh, the wealthy benefactor, but then there are also in at least some fields, corporations. So uh, the medicine is sort of the go-to where you have the quote-unquote big pharma who are going to fund a lot of R&D, research and development, just because they have a lot more resources generally than governments are willing to put out. And so a question that a a listener of the podcast was interested in was, what, in your opinion, do you think is the difference between industry-funded science versus government-funded science versus perhaps the wealthy benefactor-funded science in terms of trustworthiness, in terms of maybe ease of getting that money in the first place, and in terms of just believability of the results, because that's another thing that people on the conspiracy side point to with the whole big pharma. Well, they're paying for it, so obviously they're going to want the results to show that it's a successful drug. It, it's actually something that really boils down to the problems between the idealized human being, the idealized scientist who is truly skeptical, truly uh, acts for the benefit of advancing understa- understanding versus the reality that all of us want to be right. We all want to please others and those human emotions that too many of us actually have, uh, if only we could be Spock, uh, those human emotions do get in the way. But it's not strictly related to, for instance, Big Pharma. Uh, When I get funding from the National Science Foundation, that funding is often to advance 
novel questions. And in fact, if I don't submit a research proposal that's to do something entirely new, I get it back saying this has been done. Well, I, I send in my grant, I get my funding, I explore a question that may or may not have been explored before, but certainly hasn't been, well, answered. Mm-hmm. And if I don't get a result that I can publish, and when you're publishing, they want you to have a positive result, not a null result. Yes, the file drawer effect. Right. If I don't have a result that I can publish, I'm not going to get that next grant. And so even with my federal funding, there is a pressure to find some way to spin my data. And, and I've actually gotten the, you didn't publish enough results letter versus the, um, hi, we're going to fund you to continue th- exploring this question that led to very curious results that weren't publishable last time. Um, when you're honest, it leads to not getting funded when you're... Um, a spin doctor, when you view your publications as marketing, then it's easier to keep getting the money coming in. So you've used the term spin, and to anyone outside of science, uh, there's a very general negative connotation with that, where you're almost faking the results. And I'm curious if you could uh, elaborate on what exactly you mean by spin, because this is a, you know, especially with climate change stuff and the whole uh, climate gate controversy with the emails from the University of East Anglia, where the scientists used language which to someone who's not a scientist, it seems like they're literally faking the results. But to other scientists who then did the investigation into this and whether it was fraud, they're like, no, this is just it means something a little bit different to what the science, to what you think it means. And so I'm curious as to what you mean by spin. Well, it, I, I actually think that both the negative connotations and the positive connotations both happen. So uh, one of the phrases that I was saddest to, to learn as a professional researcher is the phrase NASA numbers. Uh, I can't remember which congressman is responsible for that, but they were going down the list of numbers of people that had had direct contact with NASA products. And when they looked at the numbers, they realized that according to the numbers, uh, either the population of the United States was significantly higher or there was something really weird with the numbers. And what it boiled down to is, for instance, at a conference, I'm Mm -hmm. required to report how many interactions I had with individuals. And if those individuals happen to be teachers, I can often report that I had direct contact with, say, I'll make the numbers easy. Actual numbers are messy and larger, but harder to do in my head. Uh, So let's say that I had direct contact with only five teachers because I was having a really bad day. And each of those five teachers is lucky enough to have a small class of only 20 people. Well, that means that I can report that I reached 100 people through my interactions that day. Now, those same five teachers might have continued walking down the aisle at the conference, and those exact same five people might have also taken the time to interact with five other NASA programs who each report 100 people. So now that's 600 people that have been reached by NASA products, but there's no attempt to say, well, actually, no, that was the exact same people, and it wasn't actually direct contact. But hey, this is how I'm asked to report it. So my numbers look really awesome. So that's one way of looking at it. Another thing that comes up with websites all the time is uh, programs like uh, Google, uh, when you look at their analytics, they will record how many times the different IP addresses come to your website. Mm-hmm. And so say I log on to a website from home, from my cell phone, from my iPad, from campus, and from the Wi-Fi at the local coffee shop. I might have five different IP addresses in one day. I might have more than that. And so that website can say that they had five different interactions that day, which can get spun into five different people visited their website, which can get spun into they have a user base of five, and really it's just me. And and what gets very frustrating is 
in reading grants, I'll often see things like, our website has over a million users, and I'll pull up some web tool that allows me to see um, what that actually means. And what it actually means is over the course of the past year, or perhaps over the entire length of time that website has existed, one million different IP addresses visited that site. Now, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean any of those people came back. It doesn't mean it was actually that many people. It could also mean it was a whole bunch of spiders, robots, crawling the internet. But they've taken that one million IP addresses over the length of time their website has has existed and spun it to say we have one million different users that we can channel into this product that we're seeking funding for. Okay, so that's an example of this type of spin that you'll sometimes see in grant proposals. And this is not something that you would necessarily do, but something that you've seen when you've reviewed other ones. Yeah, and I've actually been penalized for not doing that type of thing because they're like, well, this site over here has a million users. And it's like, no, no, they don't. Um, And so the way, as you know, that we do things with CosmoQuest is we look to see how many people have logged in multiple times in the past month. Mm -hmm. And we report that side by side with our overall traffic that comes from Alexa. And so we give them both the, this is how much web traffic we get from the entire web. And this is how often people come back multiple times. Yeah, I think uh, so. I I actually did a proposal, wrote a proposal to do a, a lunar large crater database. And I was trying to show that my Mars crater database had gotten a lot of hits. And so I reported pure download stats for my own website. And I didn't mention in the proposal that the average download size of the database was something like five megabytes when it's actually (laughs) a 40 megabyte database. So yeah, well, I had several hundred download clicks. No, yeah, many fewer than that had actually downloaded it in full. But again, you only have 15 pages and I wasn't necessarily lying. I was just sort of Spinning you it. were spinning the numbers because that's unfortunately what we have to do to get funding or you get penalized. And, and I have to admit, because I face-to-face deal with so many of the individuals who donate to our programs, I want to always be able to say, and since all of our applications have bits and pieces that can be gotten under the Freedom of Information Act, I want to consistently say numbers that can stand up to interrogation. And that makes sense. Okay, uh, so that was an interesting side note. <laughs> I <laughs> well, can, I mean, these, got these are unfortunately. The, <laughs> you 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 asked about the whole problems with funding, and the right. problems with funding are just as much there with federal funding as they are with uh, commercial funding. We just look at them differently because they they're the problems are there just as much, but they take a different format. And so you also mentioned donations. Um, yes. and, and for you, a lot of times, these aren't really wealthy benefactor type donations. These are other people uh, through, you do uh, uh, hangout-a-thons uh, for yes. you know, the 36 hours, I think, was the last one. And so this is sort of a, a fourth way of getting funding. And is this more, I guess, no, maybe your specific application or or way of doing it is fairly new because it's technology and you're show, you're doing video and audio and all that kind of chatting. But I guess that's another way of getting funding is almost the, the micro donations from a lot of different people to do science. And that has its own different way of trying to get funding. So how is, how is that different from doing like a giant NASA proposal? It's it's actually pretty much the same amount of work per dollar um, when you start to think about uh, the likelihood that you're actually going to get one of those grants that you put in. Um, but the difference is that instead of sitting down and spending three weeks of my life doing nothing but writing this grant for, say, $1 million, I have to spend that same amount of time but 
and then take that three weeks, multiply by eight to get your standard one in eight, get funded. So you're looking at 24 weeks to get $1 million, basically. So take that same 24 weeks and spread it out over one hour a day and use that to slowly bring in the money, $30, $3, $300 at a time. And people are starting to find ways to take that effort of, of cultivating donors and condensing the amount of time that's needed. Uh, for instance, you see things uh, on Kickstarter, Indiegogo, my favorite example of this was there's a new mosquito fighting technology that's being developed to help help in the eradication of malaria. It's called mm-hmm. the kite patch. They needed funding in order to go into Africa, do field testing of their work. Everything was fully approved for testing. It wasn't like they were abusing people in the third world. No, they were trying to actually make a difference. But going into Uganda... They needed the money for the travel, the production of the kits, all of the researchers. And so they went to India Gogo and they said, we're working to build a patch that you wear on your arm. Sort of think like the nicotine patches you might see people quitting smoking wearing. Mm-hmm. And when you wear that patch, it changes your scent so that you don't get bit by mosquitoes. They had a goal of $75,000 in order to go into Uganda and do their human trials. And instead, they raised $557,254, and they were able to do amazing research. They're in the process of going through uh, final approvals so that this can be released commercially. Um, This was an amazing case of making the world better through basic research that had reached the point where they needed funding from the NIH, from the NSF, or screw it, we're just going to go to the public. And, And they did. And they're changing the world with $35 and up donations. And this is what we do with CosmoQuest as well. Our average donation size is $30, and we bring in two people's worth of salary every year. And uh, that pays for you and a programmer, right? Well, it, currently we're actually taking that two pieces worth of money and kind of spreading it out over a whole bunch of different people okay. to try and keep the program going. Uh, but but yes, it, it, it pays for part of my time. It pays for one entire programmer and it pays for uh, part of one of our educational specialists time. OK, we along with this discussion, you've mentioned uh, some numbers a few times in terms of dollar amounts, like you said, a million dollar grant, or this was uh, with the malaria and mosquitoes, it was, they were looking for $75,000 and they got $500,000. And I know that one of the big misconceptions out there is that research, quote unquote, should be cheap. And they see that, um, in fact, I'd recently did a blog post about this because uh, there were some conservative websites making a big stink about how the NIH uh, paid for a study into um, uh, smartphone applications for uh, men who have sex with men and looking at disease prevention because this was a new disease vector. And they were making a big stink about how the, uh, the government spent $435,000 on this thing. And I was looking at that and I'm like, that's a small grant. That's yeah. that's not much at all. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the money actually goes to because they see those numbers and people think that's huge. So so first of all, you you have to remember most of these grants are anywhere from 3 to 5 years in length. My grants are typically 3 years in length to 4 years in length. Um so so let's let's again make the numbers round. Let's assume that someone gets an $800 grant for 4 years. So 800, 800 sorry, $800,000 grant over okay. 4 years. So you're now looking at $200,000 a year. Well, straight off of the top of that, the university is probably going to take um my university takes about a third off the top. So you now have $200,000 that has been reduced by roughly $70,000. So you're now looking at $130,000. So your average uh, fairly mid-career scientist is going to be making somewhere between sixty dollars and $70,000. So let's call it sixty-five. dollars 
double their salary to take into account things like, well, health insurance, needing a new computer every three years. Uh, you usually actually get them every six. Yeah. Um, if so, you're lucky, in my experience. Yeah. So you've now only provided the funding for one person, except one person can't really do the study by themselves. So, oh, crap, I'm only going to pay two months of my salary out of this, and I'm now going to get two grad students, except, oh, crap, grad students come with tuition and health mm-hmm. insurance. So with that roughly $200,000 a year, you can afford one or two months of a professor's salary, plus insurance, plus basic office costs. Keeping the lights on. Yeah, and then two graduate students who are getting their tuition paid to get actual research experience, and those graduate students are going to go off, and most of them are going to join industry and drive the U.S. economy. And one of the things you often hear about coming out of Silicon Valley is we have a severe brain drain here in the United States where Mm -hmm. we're losing a lot of these highly trained people. So we want to give them a positive experience. They want to stay in America or if they're Americans, not leave America. Um, I'm an American who often thinks about leaving. I know several Americans in Australia who did leave because funding is better in other places. Um, So So suddenly that $800,000 number that people will see becomes really almost nothing. I mean, it becomes, as you said, just a few months of a professor and a little bit for a grad student or two, and then trying to keep people in the country. And then it pays itself back when they join industry, assuming that they had a positive experience and will stay in the country. And, and so the thing to think about is you're paying some professors summer salary and two graduate students who are, it, it's essentially an, another way of looking at it is we're providing scholarships for people to do amazing things that have the potential to change our quality of life. So why, where, where is the problem with that? <laughs> uh, well, I, personally, I don't see one and I expect you don't either. <laughs> but again, it, it, needs, uh, it needs explanation for a lot of people yeah. and they're not a lot of times especially when, um, when when the blogs or the websites or the news sources want to create an emotive response, they just give it without any context whatsoever. Like, oh, this research and the government paid half a million dollars for it. And suddenly people are worked up because they see that number and they're like, well, that's a minimum wage salary person for 10 years or more. Yeah. And it's like, well, but it, it doesn't actually work that way. And and what they don't often realize is how poorly paid academics are compared to our colleagues in academia. And this goes throughout the entire system. Uh, our secretarial staff, our administrative staff, all those people that push the papers and fill out the federal, uh, basically, audits, mm-hmm. they're paid, well, often under $40, $40 sorry, often under $40,000 a year, which in some parts of the country means you're a full-grown adult who can't afford an apartment by yourself. You then start looking at faculty. These are people who uh, have often spent 10 or more years in university proving they are among the top 1% to 5% intellectually in the world. So we're now dealing with the smartest people on the globe. And they're earning often mid-career salaries, $65,000. Now compare that to a computer scientist who two years in is making $80,000 without a college degree in a lot of cases. So we're dealing with people who are the smartest in the world who have pretty much agreed to be underpaid for their entire lives in order to make society well, more wealthy. And then as a side note, Scott Walker last week, he he said uh, something like professors should work for less because and he wanted to cut a lot of money from the state schools just because he's like, they're overpaid and underworked. Meanwhile, he goes on all these trips and and stuff and doesn't govern. And, uh, and I'm going to cut that and, out. <laughs> and I don't, 
there's there's this amazing fantasy about both academics and classroom teachers that we only work nine months a year and hey you don't spend that many hours a day in class so you're not even working a full-time job and there was one semester several years ago where uh, the state of Illinois first introduced this really super annoying paperwork that requires us to say how we spend all of our time in these like 10 different categories and several of us filled out the paperwork honestly which meant that the number of hours we were working was anywhere from 60 to 80 hours a week mm-hmm. and uh, we clearly weren't getting paid that and I know all of us got our paperwork sent back to us and we were told, fill this out with how you're supposed to be spending your time. Hmm. And so the state of Illinois instituted paperwork to make sure that we work enough hours every week. And then when we filled it out legitimately, we were told, no, we won't accept an accurate recording of your time because you actually are working so many extra hours. And so that means that then when that paperwork gets looked at, and for policy decisions, they're like, well, hey, they only work 40 hours a week anyway. So what are they complaining about? Exactly. And at the same time, I've heard upper level academics say that postdoc doesn't work 60 to 80 hours a week. They must not be serious. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard that. <laughs> yeah. And so there's this horrible expectation that will work. 60 to hours, 60 to 80 hours a week, we'll report to our government where they're telling us we're overpaid, that we only work 40 hours a week, or 35 if you're in a 35-hour work week state. Mm-hmm. There's no winning. Yeah. All right. So let's move on from that happy topic. <laughs> um, <laughs> could you, in a, the, a short, short, short way, um, you know, maybe two or three minutes, describe the process for sort of the, the mainstream government way. Because to be honest, I mean, that's how probably most people in astronomy, astrophysics, geophysics, that kind of grouping of field in physics get paid through government grants. What is the basic process of how we get that money? So it it starts out in two different ways. You either come up with this great idea for something that you want to understand and you go to the National Science Foundation or the NASA or the Department of, en- of Energy website and you crawl through it looking for a call for re- a um, request for proposals, an RFP or a co- cooperative agreement notice, a CAN, uh, that has the potential to fund your idea. The other way is you start by going, oh, crap, my current grant runs out. There's a lot of swearing in academia. <laughs> yes, um, yes, there is. Oh, oh, crap, my current funding runs out in a year. Um, I need to see what proposals are coming up. And you read through the proposals and try and come up with ideas that fit the proposals. Either way that you start, the next thing is always the same. You typically spend anywhere from... I think the minimum to write a good grant is three full-time weeks for the person who's taking the lead on it, and everyone else involved in the grant will probably end up spending at least two to three days on putting materials together and proofreading things. And this is unpaid effort. Mm -hmm. You aren't actually legally allowed to bill the hours spent writing your next grant to the grant you're currently on. In some cases, you're lucky enough to have small parts of your time paid for uh, by your university to dedicate to grant writing, but the amount of time is never sufficient to cover all of the time that you put into the grant writing. Right. As you said, three full weeks. And yeah. that's so three out of 52. I mean, you're talking right there almost 10%, you know, okay, Brian, uh, 7% of your time for one, one grant. grant. 7% and of your time for the year. It's just spending writing one grant. The typical funding rate is one in eight. So I know I personally tend to bat about 50%. So I'm still looking at six full-time weeks of effort to get one grant if I am able to maintain that grant record. But that's a the next question I'm guessing you're going to get to. So, okay, you put all of this time into writing the grant, researching it, and then it's due. So 
when it's due is often a couple of months ahead of when you start thinking about it. So you have this idea or you come up with an idea to fit the grant. Two months later, you turn it in. The funding agency will often have that grant for six months to a year before they make a decision. If you're lucky. Yeah. So you're now looking at eight months to 14 months of waiting without any funding and not knowing if you're going to get funded. And so you keep writing more grants during this period, hoping that one of them will come through. Once you get the awards notice, hey, we're going to give you money, it will often take the funding agency anywhere from four weeks to eight weeks to get your university the funding or your academic research center or your think tank. Once the entity that you work for gets the money, it typically takes another four weeks to get the contract in place for Mm -hmm. you. And if you're subcontracting through another institution, it can take even longer. So you're often looking at 16 months to two full years, 16 months being highly optimistic, to two full years between when you have that idea and when you get the first dollar funding to fund that idea. Yeah. And that's why uh, for especially younger scientists who are sort of looking for funding and trying to figure out if they're even going to be staying in the field because they might not be able to get funding, it's quite stressful. Speaking from personal experience, because you propose and you have no idea if you're going to get funding and it could be and it will be at least a year before you even hear back and meanwhile you're like okay well should i be looking elsewhere should i be looking at private industry should i be applying for this other stuff and it's uh yeah Yeah. it's a real pain (laughs) and and then adding to the stress of that They will sometimes come back to you and say, hey, we like your idea, but we're only going to fund you to do this much. And then making it more complex for those of us who are funded 100% time off of grants and donations and funding like this and aren't paid by our universities. Um, Many of these grants only allow you to get two months worth of funding total. So you're looking at an average one in eight grants get funded. You're only allowed to ask for two months of funding at a time. How do you do that? In terms of you're paying for your salary yeah. two months out of the year per grant. Yeah. So for you, if you, if you have a 50% success rate, then that means that you would have to write uh, 12 grants. Proposal. No, 24 grant. Uh, yeah, you're right. 12 grants. Can't do math in my head anymore. <laughs> okay. Um, it's also depressing. It has broken my logic functions. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, that, and, and, and that's, that's actually, yeah. And, and I probably am writing anywhere from 12 to 20 grants per year. And that starts to be exhausting because that means I'm not actually paid a full-time salary because I can't work that many hours while writing that many grants. Well, but clearly you as an academic aren't working enough. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so what, speaking of, of this, you said one in eight is a typical success rate. Uh, you've tended to have in the past a 50% rate. What is the various, or, or are the various different success rates across uh, different funding agencies, if you know them? Um, for example, I know in medicine, because um, my, my dad works in, in hospitals, that um, the NIH typically has a success rate of five percent or less so only one in 20 proposals get funded and mass communications is one in 30 jeez yeah and and one of the frustrations is it used to be in astronomy that it was one in four um which 25 percent got funded sometimes it was 30 percent got funded but it's it's getting worse uh as funding gets cut as NASA money goes away. So how, how do we deal with this? And the answer is that many young people and many soft money people are leaving the field. And mm-hmm. this is actually part of the intended goal. One of the things that led to heavy drinking that I was told was word coming down from Congress to uh, a funding agency whose program officer I was talking to 
word coming down is the space race is over. We won. It's time to send the academics home. And the idea behind changing some of the policies at the National Science Foundation and NASA, and I, I suspect this is happening at other agencies, um, from being fairly easy to ask for 12 months worth of funding for senior people who are dedicating all of their time to research to, no, you're, you're going to get two months. The idea behind that was if you're not a tenured or tenure track teaching professor, we don't want you. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, so much Hurt for your this soul being a, a pleasant bit. note. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, before we get to my last question, which is a little bit, um, a little bit different, I wanted to ask if there are any other kinds of common misconceptions that you have heard, you've seen, or that you just generally think that people might have with regards to funding for basic science research, or maybe specifically astronomy research. The, the biggest mis- misconception I think we've already hit on, and, and that's that all of these money, all of this money is making people rich. And this is actually something that you sometimes encounter in university professors that aren't in science fields applying to money. Um, the first large grant that I got, um, which now I realize was actually a really itty bitty little tiny grant, uh, it, it was a 500 something thousand dollar grant and spread over three and a half years and covered 10 million different things was 20% of my salary and a bunch of other humans. Um, the assumption that, that I had shouted at me by a loud, upset individual was, um, how dare people like me earn so much money when we aren't doing that much work. And the Hmm. assumption was that all of that $500,000 was going into my pocket. Right. Okay. Well, that's, that was a pleasant misconception. (laughs) Um. It's one that if we can dissuade, maybe people will start to realize, wait, the people responsible for innovating our understanding, Wi-Fi exists because of radio astronomy. The people who are working to develop petaflop computers to study globular clusters. Um, All of these things that are making other people rich are coming out of the basic research done in fields like astronomy. And while there are people getting rich, you and I have essentially sworn a vow of poverty in order to be given the privilege to explore other worlds. Okay, so let's move on to something perhaps a little bit more speculative. And this will be probably the final question, uh, unless it, it leads somewhere interesting. And, <laughs> well, and this one might. Uh, this was also sent in by a listener. Um, in your opinion, if we were to discover life elsewhere in the solar system, what do you think it would do to NASA's budget and even related agencies' budgets? I, I honestly think that it would cause a significant increase in, fun- in funding for the very simple reason that you'll have the double whammy of public excitement demanding to know more, to understand more, to explore more, combined with the not discussed but influencing budgets. Uh, how can we weaponize this? <laughs> it's useful, but not. Maybe lasers mounted on shark heads in space. (laughs) I'm good with that. Uh, So then along with that, it sounds like you probably then don't think it makes any sense for NASA to hide evidence of ET life, uh, unlike what many, what I would say, pseudoscientists or armchair um, image analysts might argue online. I... I don't only think it doesn't make sense. I also think that you really can't trust most PhDs. And by most, I might mean all working in universities. I'm not sure I go quite that far, but it feels that way some days. Um, I, I don't think you can trust academics to keep secrets very far. I, I was 17 years old the first time I had someone uh, reveal top secret information they weren't supposed to say because they were that excited. <laughs> Oops. Um, <laughs> 
I've I've had a number of people over the years say things that they weren't supposed to because they were drunk, they were excited, they figured they could trust me with the information, and I'm clearly not telling their secrets, but I'm saying I've met these people. You may even know who you are uh, and be quaking a bit. Um, you can't trust academics to keep secrets. We drink too heavily. Okay. Well, some of us do. Um, <laughs> I'm weird. I, I don't drink. But um, And two weeks later, after recording this, Pamela received a visit from the CIA. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Um, obviously, I, I personally agree. I think it's kind of crazy. And uh, But I always hear... The people say, you know, they'll give their idea of, okay, you know, in this NASA photograph of Mars, there, there's clearly uh, a fossil or there's clearly uh, a spotlight aimed at curiosity as opposed to something like a hot pixel or a cosmic ray. <laughs> right. And, and then the host will ask if sometimes they'll say, well, then why isn't NASA saying anything about it? And then they say, oh, well, they have to cover their salaries because there's if they reveal all of this evidence for this stuff, then then society will go into chaos and various other things. And I'm just like, but, but their salaries would go way up and, and yeah. job security and more yeah. probes and, and stuff. I, I think that if we find intelligent life with the potential to get here, uh, or even without the potential to get here. It has the possibility of creating the Independence Day style chaos of people shouting and joining cults and committing suicide. But I think that if the life forms don't have that possibility, if it's the moral equivalent of I Love Lucy from alpha centauri b it's it's going to be sort of a huh let's add money to this um and you might end up with a few stray religions coming up but you won't end up with societal collapse i do think that there have been some really good fiction books that have started to address some of these ideas of how it would affect christianity how it would affect other religions that believe in the idea of, of redemption and uh, chosen people and such to realize that there might be other intelligent societies out there. But that starts to become philosophy and religion questions. And if you have an unquestioned life, you're doing it wrong anyways, in my <laughs> personal opinion. So it's, it's okay to raise questions. And I don't think we're going to find intelligent life that can get here from there. So we're good. Let's keep going. Let's find it. Let's increase everybody's funding. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Or even just the success rates of the funding proposals that are already out there. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> okay, well, on that interesting, pleasant, and then slightly depressing note, uh, is there anything else uh, related to what we've discussed that you want to get in before I say thank you and goodbye? I, I think people need to look around the world and see how nations that just 10 years ago we referred to as developing nations are becoming world leaders in space exploration because their governments have put money into education, into teacher training, into college for their population, into graduate school for their population, and into creating space industries that can dream big instead of fearing their dreams will be crushed we are going to fall behind and this will have major repercussions not just on our ability to answer the cool questions of who are we where did we come from how will it all end but it will also have major repercussions on our nation's capitalist industry we need to spend money on basic research not just so that we can dream big but so well the people who actually understand money can take all of our big ideas and discoveries and turn them into a lucrative and wealthy society. It, it all comes full circle. Give more money to science and science gives back. And I think that's a very good way to end this. So uh, I will say thank you and goodbye. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, Stuart.
thanks again to Pamela for coming on to talk about, well, some of the depressing nature of how scientists do and, in practicality, don't get funding these days. In the interest of full disclosure, I am one of the lead scientists for CosmoQuest's citizen science effort in terms of the moon mappers and the Mercury mappers, where we ask you to identify craters on these objects in order to do science with them. So I wanted to get that out there, that little conflict of interest, as well as then mention that uh, Pamela has asked me to place, and I have placed, a donate link to CosmoQuest's effort on the show notes for this episode on the podcast website. That would be podcast.sjrdesign.net. And then you can find it on the main page. Or if you're listening to this, um, I guess, in about two months or later, it would be the podcast.sjrdesign.net slash show notes underscore 126.php. And with that said, the next episode should start a trifecta of episodes on the whole Comet Hale-Bopp issue, we'll just say. There might be one episode interrupting those three where I talk with Dave Draper, who creates or who chairs the program committee for probably the largest planetary science conference in the world annually, the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference that is in Houston every year in mid-ish March. That's uh, Houston, Texas, USA. And he chairs it, and I want to interview him to talk about what happens when they get abstracts that are clearly pseudoscientific, or perhaps maybe not clearly, but really sort of go there. And in particular, I'm going to be asking him about the abstracts that they received from John Brandenburg, who I addressed in the Was Mars Murdered episode of the podcast. Uh, I think that's around episode 86 or so. So I'm going to talk to him about what he and what they as a program committee do when they see these kinds of abstracts. Because one of the things that is often touted by pseudoscientists is that they'll say, hey, even if we try to submit to these conferences or these journals, they'll reject us. And so therefore, it's a, it's a martyr complex, and it's an idea of they're not even letting our ideas through these pearly gates in order to disseminate them to other scientists who really might take them seriously. And so we're going to talk about what really goes on during that week where they read literally, for LPSC at least, the Lunar Planetary Science Conference, over 1,000 submitted abstracts and decide what's going to get a talk, what's going to get a poster, what's going to get print only, or if any should be rejected. So that's all coming up over the next two months or so. And uh, that said, thanks for listening and come back soon. That wraps up this topic for the 126th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, or the blog post for the episode, or the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can even tweet me, at pseudo, P-S-E-U-D-O, astro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and random people that you'll never meet in real life. And I've noticed that a few of you have been posting this to random threads on Facebook, uh, linking to the podcast page on Facebook, and I do appreciate that. 